In this episode of Your Double Podcast, we are speaking to Leanne Townsend, who is an experienced divorce lawyer. She also coaches her clients through their divorce and run workshops and other programs to help those who are going through a tough divorce. She is the host of Divorcing Well, a YouTube show and podcast focused on sharing legal and other helpful information for those who are going through separation and divorce. As someone who has gone through a divorce herself and have consulted hundreds of clients over the past decade, she talked a lot about how to go about setting up a prenuptial agreement, how to manage parental alienation, how to be a good co-parent, how to cope with divorce and so much more. So without further ado, let's get to the episode. First of all, thank you for taking some time to be on our podcast. I understand that you practice in Canada, but we do have listeners from everywhere around the globe. Personally, I would like to ask your opinion on things that are happening outside of Canada and what do you think about it? I hope that's okay with you. Yeah, no, that's okay. The, the only caution I have to add is just that because I'm a lawyer in Toronto, Canada, um, like any legal, like the, the legal situation could be different in different states in the U.S. and whatnot. So I have to sort of caution that anything I'm saying is, you know, how it is here in Ontario. And it could be different in different jurisdictions. Yep. For anyone listening, please know that this podcast is not a legal guide. This is a discussion about topics such as parental alienation, divorcing, co-parenting, and so on. But please do understand that everyone's situation and circumstance is different. So please consult your lawyers before you decide what is the right action for you. Yeah, okay, perfect. That's all I need to hear. <laughs> I always say getting legal advice from a podcast is like learning how to swim. I'm sure you can get some tips and tricks from an online video or some podcasts, but you will still need a swimming coach right there with you if you really want to learn how to swim. You can't listen to a podcast and then jump in the deep end of a pool. I'm sure you're going to end up drowning so same way do get some qualified legal practitioners out there to advise you based on your situation (laughs) through speaking with a lot of legal experts one thing that i know for sure is that infidelity or adultery is one of the major reasons for divorce i know that some countries will consider adultery as something that they weigh in when it comes to dividing assets and child custody how about canada well here in ontario where i practice law uh, adultery is, is not, uh, you can get a divorce on the grounds of adultery, although nobody really needs that. Generally, people get a divorce uh, because they've lived apart for a year. That's kind of the standard reason that most people use. But adultery is definitely not a factor in property and debt division and spousal support. So the idea here is it's no fault divorce. Um, somebody's conduct, even if they were abusive, you know, let alone adultery, that doesn't factor in into any difference in property or spousal support. And I think it's better that way. Um, I mean, I understand that if you're somebody who's been 
you know, cheated on and, and whatnot, that it's a horrible experience. And, you know, nobody, nobody likes to go through that. And, and I understand the anger and, and hurts and, you know, all of the emotions that somebody goes through when they're, they're in that situation. But at the end of the day, property division is really about, you know, money and obviously support is also about money. And in my view, it's better to keep the emotional stuff out of those types of things and try and look at them objectively based on what the law is. In the same way, another huge factor for divorce is spousal abuse. Many countries look at this as a serious offense and heavily consider it as a factor for how things are divided after divorce. So is domestic abuse considered as a factor in Canada? Um, well, again, here in Ontario, that would be something that doesn't get factored into property division or spousal support. It, it could be considered, though, with respect to things like custody and access, which is where I think it might be more relevant. Um, although there are some people who abuse their spouse and shockingly are still a good parent in other ways. But often, in my, you know, in my personal view, if you're somebody who is abusive to the other parents of your children, um, then you're not showing that you're a good parent. And so I think it's, it's something that should be relevant and should be taken into account with respect to the parenting schedule and custody and access. But I don't think necessarily that it should be taken into account with respect to the financial issues. I mean, maybe it could be seen as a, you could have it as a penalization or something like that. And whether that would deter anyone from doing it, I, I doubt it. But, you know, maybe it would make the victim of it feel at least they got some sort of compensation in some way by getting more spouse support or, or whatnot because of it. But I'm, I guess I'm so used to the way things are done here. It's hard for me to even think outside the box as to how that would look. So I, I think it's relevant to custody and access, but not so much to financial. Right. From what you're saying, I feel that Canada have a somewhat unique legal process when it comes to divorces. Can you explain more about how divorces go in Canada? Well, a divorce here, as I said, is generally a no-fault situation. Uh, so if people have lived, if a couple has lived apart for one year, they can apply for a divorce and they, they fill out an application and swear an affidavit. And if it's uncontested, um, they have to serve it on the other party, but the other party doesn't have to respond. And you don't even have to go to court. The material gets filed with the court. It goes in front of the judge in chambers and the judge signs off on it. And it generally takes a few months. Um, so it's a pretty straightforward process. Now, if the divorce is contested, so that one of the parties is, is fighting the divorce or arguing against it, you know, then it's going to get much more complicated and it will end up in court where a judge has to hear uh, both sides. But, I mean, with something like a divorce, really, if one person wants to be divorced, the other person doesn't stop it. Um, it might just be a matter of sorting out the other issues such as the support and property division and child custody and access, but the divorce itself, all it takes really is one person wanting it. Wow, it seems that divorces are pretty straightforward in Canada. Definitely. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who are in unhappy marriages who don't end up getting divorced just simply because they don't want to have to divide up their assets, they don't want to have to pay spousal support, they, they don't want their income you know, to be cut. And, you know, it's interesting because I find, you know, across a lot of people who are, you know, in unhappy marriages and often they'll say that, you know, well, they're staying together for the children. And 
I always want to challenge them on that because children in unhappy marriages usually spend their with them get a divorce. And I, I think the real reason why a lot of couples do stay together is for financial reasons. And maybe people don't want to admit it because maybe that sounds bad. But I think that's the reality. There are a lot of people who just stay together purely because of the lifestyle that they have together is better than they're going to have if they divorce. Awesome. It does make sense that they can stop getting riled up about their failing marriages and concentrate on raising the kids and being happy. I understand that perspective. With that said, I believe that a prenuptial agreement is an absolute necessary and it is one of those things that can help people to reach a better divorce or an amicable separation without all the suffering and cost that comes with dealing with divorce courts and uh, lawyers and so on. I know that uh, prenuptial agreements are not recognized by Malaysia, my home country. So I know that I'm definitely never going to get married in Malaysia. But prenups are accepted widely in Western countries such as the United States. How about Canada? Is it recognized? And what's your general opinion about prenups? Uh, yeah, that's definitely the same. I mean, I'm a big advocate of prenuptial agreements. I think everyone should have one. I think that they're, they have nothing to do with not loving your, you know, your new your potential partner. It, to me, it's a responsible thing to do. A marriage, you know, although love is involved, it, it's also a, it's a business aspect to it because it does involve money. And I think it's far better for people to sit down when they still are, you know, madly in love with each other and they're calmer and, you know, whatnot and decide how things would look if, you know, the worst case scenario happens and they do split up rather than waiting until that happens and they hate each other and, and they're fighting. Um, it's interesting. I also think, like here in Canada, generally, in order to you know get a divorce or have a properly drafted separation agreement, it's usually recommended that people have to go and get independent legal advice. And I've often thought that people should have to get independent legal advice in order to get married too, because you know maybe if they went into the marriage and they understood how financially it might affect them and what their rights and obligations are, they you know, might think things through a little more clearly before getting married. So, I mean, I can say, I think prenups are a really good idea. They do get set aside, but not always. I mean, you know, I think it's a, it's a well, really well-drafted one. It, it will stand up to a court test that there be one. And uh, particularly for second marriages or marriages later in life, uh, I definitely think that there's... As someone who's not married, the first question that came to my mind when you said that was, how do I even bring up the topic of prenups with someone? I know that it's the wise thing to do, but it seems a bit daunting as it might have, it might be taken the wrong way. Well, I think that's a great question. And, and I agree that, you know, in different countries, in different cultures, I'm sure it's a much more difficult issue to broach than it is, you know, in sort of typical Western society culture. Um, but it, to me, if you're going to be marrying someone, you can't talk about money and property and things like that, then, then that's a sign that you maybe don't have the best communication and that is something that you should be able to talk about. And it, again, it, to me, you have to remove the emotions from it. it. It's not a matter of not loving somebody just because you want to protect yourself. Um, it's a matter of being practical when the reality is that the divorce rate is, you know, as high as it is in you know, Canada, the United States and, and, you know, some other countries around the world. So, it's just a smart move. So, I mean, I, I think that it's just part of the pre-marriage communication. And, and I think if a couple has a good relationship, that they can talk about all sorts of things, that's money and 
money issues, which is what this really is, um, is something that they should be able to comfortably speak about. Um, and, you know, I, so I think it's something that they should talk about before speaking to a lawyer. I think it's, you know, I don't think anyone should ever be blindsided to be receiving something from a lawyer and their you know, potentially partner has said nothing about it. I think it's, they should have a conversation about it. And then, um, you know, here in, in Canada, in Ontario, uh, you know, the party who particularly wants to have a prenuptial agreement would be the one to go to a lawyer and have the lawyer draft it. And the lawyer would send it to the other party with a letter advising them to get independent legal advice so to take the agreement to their own lawyer and have somebody review it with them. And, you know, there may be some modifications that get suggested from that or there may not, but it's you know, I would highly recommend to the other party that they get their own independent legal advice. And then if they choose not to, I would have to have them sign a waiver saying that they were told that they should get independent legal advice and they chose not to and um, that they had that right and, you know, and voluntarily chose not to exercise it. Uh, just in order to make sure that the agreement... Right. That is so smart. So if the day ever comes that the prenup is being challenged, you practically have something in black and white that your spouse declined the independent legal consultation and they signed the right off. What are the other things that one need to think about when it comes to prenuptial agreements? Um, well, first of all, you want the agreement to be in, in writing so that it's properly laid out, if not just presenting something verbally. Um, and in order for it to be executed properly, you know, both parties have to sign and have to be witnessed, and it's better if each party has their own legal advice. Um, in terms of the content of the agreement, I mean, it really depends. I, I mean, if you think to me, if an agreement that your wife had given you, uh, I would go through it with you to make sure that you understand what the agreement is providing for and what your actual legal rights and entitlements are and how they, they are being affected by the agreement so that you could decide whether or not, you know, you, you're willing to waive some things that you might be entitled to by signing the agreement um, or whether you're not or whether there's some things, you know, there might be some suggested changes or modifications. Um, and if they agree, sometimes I've had people come to me with a very, very one-sided agreement, you know, their their prospective spouse, you know, is somebody who is very wealthy, has you know multiple businesses and a lot of money, and they're asking the new spouse to basically sign off on like everything. Um, you know, I think that's probably to me that's not a fair agreement. There, and I would advise someone of that. I would say, you know, like this is very one-sided. I think that you know it, this is reflection on you know if, if the scenario to go south. Um, that your spouse really, you know, wants you to be high and dry afterwards. And, um, you know, and, and I would say that. Um, I, I think sometimes with agreements, too, you can work in clauses where the longer you're married, the more somebody might be entitled to, which I think is actually, you know, in that kind of situation where you've got somebody who's very wealthy and somebody who has very little, that might be a reasonable solution. Because obviously if you're married for one or two years, you you don't want somebody to suddenly be entitled to a whole bunch of money that you earned well before you ever met them. But on the other hand, if somebody's with you for 30 years, then, you know, they perhaps you know, should be entitled to something. The other day, my friend mentioned that even if we do have a prenuptial agreement, 
there is a huge chance that the court will throw the prenuptial agreement out because it's easy to claim that they were under duress when they signed it. How do we go about such a situation? Yeah, no, that's true. They would have to prove that they were under duress, so they would have to provide evidence um, of what that duress was. But certainly, if there is duress, and you know, that's unfortunately like one of the scenarios that comes up is you know something presented with one of these agreements on the eve of you know the wedding, and you know somebody then might say, "Well, I the wedding is going to be in like two days." I felt and. My spouse told me they weren't going to marry me unless I signed it. Like, that could be, you know, potentially the rest in, in certain circumstances. And so that's the other thing I always tell people is that if you're contemplating having a prenuptial agreement, it's better to get that well, well, well in advance of any wedding date. You don't want to be scrambling around in the day. But if she presented it to you well in advance and you held off on it, for a long time, I, I think that would undermine the duress argument. It would be more if she presented it to you two days before and said, here, you need to sign it. If she presented it to you six months before and you waited until two days before to sign it, I think it would be very hard to argue duress in that situation. We've been speaking a lot about prenuptial and postnuptial agreements. I know from my own circle of friends, 99% of people who are married do not have a prenuptial agreement. So we got to discuss how to go about an amicable divorce if you don't have a prenuptial agreement. How early should one meet with their lawyer in the process of separation? Well, I think as soon as someone is seriously considering separation or divorce, they should speak to a lawyer as one of the first things they do. And it doesn't mean they have to necessarily retain the lawyer and decide that they're going to go ahead with the divorce right away. But it's important to find out what your rights are and what your obligations are and how your actions might affect things down the road. And people are so afraid of lawyers and they think that lawyers are going to be you know, so expensive and that they're going to take all their money and people are so reluctant to speak to one. And it can really be a mistake because, um, you know, I don't know if either of you have seen the movie Marriage Story, um, but in that movie, it was a Oscar nominated, I don't think it won, but it was, you know, out a year or two ago. And one of the things that happened in that movie was that the husband, um, he didn't get legal advice right at the beginning. And the wife moved to, they lived in New York, the wife moved to California and took the child. And he thought it was just going to be a temporary thing, and he used to it. But then she later on wanted to make that the permanent residence for her and the child. And, you know, if, a, if he met with a lawyer, a lawyer might have told him, you know, you shouldn't be moving to the other side of the country in case that ends up setting up a precedent and, or a status quo, and it's going to be hard for you to unwind down the road. But because he didn't get the legal advice, he didn't know. And then he ended up in a situation where the end result was that the mother and child lived in California, in New York. So I always think it's you just some lawyers provide free consultations. Um, I don't provide a free one, but I do provide an hour at a discounted rate. And I think it's good for people is is very early on to meet with a lawyer and find out specific things with respect to their situation so that they can properly protect themselves. While you were explaining just now and talking about the movie, great movie by the way. Something came to my mind. I know it might sound weird or random, but I'm just going to ask about it. Say that I'm not in a good place with my wife and I'm thinking about getting divorced. Wouldn't it be weird if I do meet a divorce lawyer and then end up still staying in the marriage? Well, it could, but I mean, in, in my view, if, that's, if, if the fact that, you know, say I was, I'm, I'm forced to say I was married, 
the fact that my husband consulted a lawyer about divorce and then stayed with me, if, if that if that in and of itself is enough to do the marriage in, then I don't think it's a very good marriage anyway. So, I mean, it, yeah, it might create an argument or it could create, you know, an issue. But if you're going to have a, a long-term successful marriage, you have to be able to work through things like that. And if something, if that in and of itself is sufficient to cause a, you know, your marriage to end, then I think your marriage is on some shaky things. Right. That makes sense. I know that lawyers make money when they assist others with their divorce. So when someone approaches you with the thought of getting divorced, but they are unsure about it, do you encourage them or how will that go? Um, I would say, I mean, it comes up sometimes. Uh, usually by the time I'm meeting with people, like they're, they're pretty steadfast or they've already separated and, you know, they knew they needed to get a lawyer. If, I have, if someone comes to me and they're not sure what to do, I... I don't push them to do it. I, you know, I say that, you know, this is a big decision and be certain of, you know, what you want to do. And here's the pros, here's the cons. And, you know, if you're not happy, if you can find marriage counseling or try and work on things, I, I tell people they should do that. But if they tried, you know, everything and nothing's changed, I always say nothing changes if nothing changes. So, it, it, you know, unless you want to keep living your life the way that it is, something has to change in some way in order to make it better. Do people argue more about custody of their children or the assets and properties and so on? Um, I mean, custody is obviously definitely, is definitely an issue. I find people argue, my clients anyway, argue more about money because nowadays in, in Ontario, and I don't know if it's like this in California or other parts of the U.S., um, joint custody is very common and shared parenting is very common. So if you have a situation with a couple and both parents want custody unless one of them is abusive or negligent or has substance abuse issues a judge is most likely going to give them joint custody and custody here means decision making so there's decision making is um with respect to things like education health religion and extracurricular activities um a lot of people think custody is about parenting time but here in ontario Parenting time is a different thing. So you could have joint custody, but the children could still reside with one of the parents more than the other. Um, but just with as men have become, you know, more hands-on as dads and women have been more in the workforce, the trend is definitely more towards, you know, joint custody and shared parenting. So often there's some fighting about it, but it, it, the fighting tends to be uh, more about money because if I have a client come to me saying they want sole custody, I'll explain to them the reality of getting it. Um, unless there's the issues I mentioned, like abuse, neglect, and that sort of thing, it'll be, it would be very hard to get sole custody. That is awesome. In some parts of the world where our listeners are from, there's no default joint custody kind of thing. Many places still give 100% custody to the mothers. This normally leads to parental alienation or gaslighting the kids about the other parent. Do you see this happening in Canada? Yes, sadly I do. I see more of them than I would like to see. I, I, I think that parental alienation is a form of child abuse. Um, but I do see it. I mean, and there's, there's levels of it. I mean, I think all, all parents who are going through divorce at some point in time in a moment of frustration or anger might say something bad about the other parent to the children. And, and you know, it's not something that should happen, but I think just as, as a normal human being, you know, that might happen on the odd occasion. But, you know, where it's something that's done 
you know, continuously. I mean, it, it hurts the children. It hurts the children more than anyone. And those types of situations are very, very challenging to deal with because once the children, um, you know, are alienated from the other parent, it's very hard to um, to undo that damage until maybe they're in, in adulthood and, and I have a better understanding of what went on. And I have a client right now where that's happened. The father has alienated her from one of the daughters. They have two daughters. And it's just a very sad situation. And she's had to kind of accept the daughter's 13. And for the time being, she can't really be a factor in her life because her daughter doesn't want her around her at all and she has to kind of just be patient and you know continually let her daughter know she's there and she wants to spend time with her and to speak to her but she can't force it because there's been so much alienation that's happened and so it's a very tricky situation and you know, it's very harmful to the children exactly parental alienation is definitely harmful for the kids the worst is that sometimes the separated parent use their kids as a way to take revenge by limiting the visitation hours and uh, all that. Sometimes the kids get gaslighted and told lies about the other parent. It's really sad that these things happen, but it's more common than we think. It, it is, but it, it's not, the problem is it's not always related. Because it, and I think with parental alienation, it can also depend a lot on the ages of the children. Like in her case, her daughter's 13, and you know, teenagers can, their, their legs do the walking as to where they want to be. And they, you know, they know how to block, you know, like this daughter at times just walks her mother on her phone or on, you know, email and things like that. So sometimes the mother doesn't, she's sending the messages, but she doesn't even know, you know, if the daughter is receiving them. And then, you know, when children are younger and they don't necessarily even have their own phone and it has to go through alienate alienate her parents phone you know then you really wonder you know if i send this message is my child even seeing it so you know that can definitely be a problem and sometimes you know the damage can be done very quickly like in the case of this client i'm referencing um a lot of the damage got done very quickly early on when they first separated because dad told the daughter that it was the mother's fault. Mom, the mother was wanting to end the marriage. The mother was, it was all being driven by her. She was trying to do all these horrible things. And the daughter immediately believed all of that. And right from the get-go, was very angry at her mother. And then it just spun out of control from there. I'm not trying to be a sexist here, but there are more cases when men getting alienated compared to the females. What are your thoughts on this? It's interesting because, um, you know, in certain countries in this world, women have very little rights still, too. So, um, you know, I, the divorce rate is, is very low, I think, because of that, because if a woman were to leave a marriage, she'd be in jail and everything. But I, I'm, so uh, the custody thing would certainly play out, you know, differently in countries like that. Um, but it's also interesting here in North America, because I think for years and years, there, you know, was always a perceived bias of children to be with their mom. You know, a lot of dads would complain that, you know, women ended up getting, moms ended up with custody more often than them. And um, as they say, that seems to be slowly changing, which I think is a good thing because I think, you know, nowadays we can see that, you know, dads can be great caregivers too. And many dads are hands-on involved as, as moms are. Um, and so that change is happening, but, you know, that took a long time because for a long time, you know, it was kind of the presumption that children will, 
mother will have custody and dad will have visitation. It's interesting because uh, one of the things I find I commonly see with uh, some of my female clients is that because they are the mom, they actually do think that they should have more say in what happens to the children. Or you, you know, you have situations where you know the mom did more for the children. She's the one who's always you know bathing and that's helping making sure they brush their teeth and making sure they do their homework and you know taking them to activities and this sort of thing. And then they go through a separation and divorce, and dad says, "Well, wait a minute, I want to do those things too, and I want an opportunity to do it." And mom gets really mad because she's like, well, he never did any of these things before. And, and he said, why is he now doing it? And I have to say to a client in that situation, it doesn't matter. If he didn't do it before, if he's prepared to do it now, he has that right. And it's better it's better for your children to have quality time with both of their parents. So if dad is willing to now step up to the plate and do all of those things, um, that's a good thing. But a lot of moms get resentful because they, they feel that, he should, dad should be penalized that he didn't do these things earlier on somehow, and it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I get that. But being a man, I can see that sometimes while you're going through your divorce, you end up in a situation where you realize that you might lose your kids, and you step up to be someone who wants to make sure you don't lose your kids. So things that we take for granted before might become really meaningful for you, as what people say you only know the importance of something when you're about to lose it. Things like going to kids' uh, football game or ballet practice and so on and so forth. I see many dads who are stuck in this position and they suffer emotionally a lot due to it. Yeah, I do unfortunately see that often. I have, you know, two clients, three men that I have right now as clients that are just jumping right to the forefront of my mind who are in that kind of situation. Um, and it's difficult. I mean, it, it, you know, my heart goes out to them. They're, they're in the case of the people I'm thinking of, like, these are good dads. These are men who want to be involved with their children and they have a life and or an exercise which is unreasonable and unfair. And she's been because of the delays with court, um, it's she's getting you know, she's setting up the status quo and getting an unfair advantage because she refuses to let the children go with him. It's like she decides the schedule. And, he, and because he doesn't want to create a scene in front of the children and go in and physically remove them and, and you know, have the police involved, um, it, it's very challenging. And, you know, and it's interesting because even my brother, um, he has a, a situation with his ex-wife where she, and he's a, he's a teacher, he loves kids, and he withholds access at times to no reason. Because he doesn't have a court order or a separation agreement in place, he can get away with it. So... It's very important to you know to get that order and get that agreement, but when you're in that limbo land of, of not having those things and delaying things, it it is very hard. So I mean, I would say to men in that situation that first of all, make sure you got supports in place, like whether you have a therapist or whether you have you know other resources um, out there, you know, with friends and family that you can talk to to help you cope, because you know you don't want somebody obviously committing suicide and, and, and falling into, you know, complete depression and despair. So it's understandable how that can happen. So I'd say make sure you have your supports in place um, and, you know, reach out to people to, to discuss how you're feeling because that's really important. And the other thing, which is, you know, it doesn't make people necessarily really feel any better, but I, I you know, I said it's not, you have to be patient. Like, you know, we'll get our day in court. It, it's not going to be as fast as you would like to be, but we will get our day and we will be able to present all the things that your ex 
spouse has done to deny access and to try to alienate you, and you'll get you'll get a fair hearing, but it's not going to be as quick as you would like, and you just have to be patient and keep trying and don't give up. Yep, patient is the key, as these processes can take really, really long. Some of our listeners are in worse positions, as not only they have been alienated, but their ex-partner have moved to a place far from them just to disable the alienated parent from meeting the kids. Like some even moved across continents, right? It's exactly the situation with Find My Parents' founder. His wife moved to Japan, and now he's completely cut off from the kid's life. I mean, those are very difficult situations. Uh, you know, and here in Ontario, the main uh, guiding post for child custody is what's in the best interest of the child. And so when you run into a situation where a child has been extremely alienated from the other parent, uh, even though the right thing, for instance, of a fairness and justice thing might be for the judge to say, okay, well, we're, you have to hand the children over to that other parent because you shouldn't be able to get away with what you did in alienating them. The reality is that that might not be in the best interest of the child who's now, you know, fearful or hateful towards that, that other parent. And so, you know, unfortunately, sometimes the, the alienating parent who's acted terribly, it, it does get rewarded for their behavior by keeping custody, uh, you know, have them go with the other parent. So, you know, that's certainly problematic. Um, here in Ontario, and you know, judges can order that there be, you know, counseling and, and things like that and reunification programs for that. Um, they can also order, you know, sex, what's called a Section 30 assessment, which is where a, a psychologist does an assessment on the children and tries to figure out what's best for them and, and considers parental alienation and whether it's happened. And, provides, uh, you know, an expert opinion to uh, the court on what would be in the children's best interest. Um, so those are other things. But a lot of these, like a, a Section 30 assessment, that's very expensive. Counseling programs, you know, most of them aren't covered by, you know, people's employment or insurance or things like that. And counseling can be very expensive. And I know the client that I mentioned earlier, the female client, who was alienated? Yeah, you know, she was looking at a reunification counseling program, and I think it was like forty thousand dollars or something. It was really expensive, wow. so you know that's a problem too. Uh, you know, people who are in this situation, we need more resources that are cost-effective, available for people in this. Situation. Another thing that came to our mind while we were talking about how these things are costly is that more than fifty percent of parents who are going through this divorces, separations, and all that are not typically from an affluent background. They might be too poor to afford lawyers like yourself. Is there any way they can get some help as well? Um, well, that's a great question because, you know, that, that access to justice really is an issue. Um, you know, certainly here in Ontario, it's a problem. Lawyers are expensive and a lot of people, you know, can't afford a lawyer. Um, we have something here called delayed. I don't know if you have something there where People who don't have any income, they can get state-funded, um, you know, state funding for a, a lawyer. But it's it's limited, and it, it and it has its challenges. But so for people who are you know in that type of situation who can't afford a lawyer and are being alienated from their children, um, I mean, they they're really their only option then is to self-represent and. You know, I don't think they have to necessarily be discouraged. There are lots of people who self-represent and are, you know, able to 
to manage okay, but obviously if they're up against someone who's got a very skilled lawyer, that they're at a disadvantage. Um, the other thing is that there again here in Ontario, some lawyers do um, like work where they don't have to be fully retained to do everything, but they'll give advice or they'll draft the document or they'll you know they'll do um, it's called limited scope retainers here, and so you know if somebody has only limited funds and they can't afford to have a lawyer do everything, they can consult with the lawyer on specific parts as needed to get their help on the most important things and and do it that way. Um, so that's another option. But if you know if you can't do that and you, you have to self-represent, I mean, there is a lot of information available online. You have to be careful about it. I because I, I know one of my biggest pet peeves is clients who you know Google their legal situation and you know come to me and disagree with what I'm saying because they Google something different. You can't always rely on Google, but you know there are a lot of resort. There are a lot of like good websites with a lot of information, and even on this topic of parental alienation, there are a lot of good websites out there with information. So I would tell someone to do their you know research, read as much as possible to get informed, um, and then you know use a lawyer if, if they can, even if it's just specific aspects of their case. But um, you know ed- just be as educated as they can to represent themselves. I hear from dads who are going through divorces that there is a gender bias in the court where the female will normally get what they want. I know that it's generally the case looking at what's been happening within my circle of friends. Any thoughts on this? Um, I think that historically there's been a gender bias. It is starting to change. Um, It may still be there a little bit, but I think that it is changing. And one of the examples I point to is I recently had a case where I had a client who was a mother of a, a 10-month-old infant who was still breastfeeding. And he, they, her and her husband separated, and she didn't want the child to be on overnight with the dad because he was still breastfeeding. And he wanted to have, um, well, he even he initially wanted like 50%. Um, and it ended up the judge decided that he could get two overnights a week become more as the child got older and she was you know devastated because essentially it ended up meaning she had to, to wean the baby uh a little earlier than she had planned to and things like that and i mean once upon a time that that type of order never would have happened it would have been though the baby could be with mom and even when i went through my own divorce uh, back in 2005 um at that time my children were one and three and it was viewed that Children of that age should primarily be with their mom. And, you know, as they get older, it could change. And it did, you know, as my children got older, it ended up being a 50-50 type of arrangement. And my children were fine with that. Um, so I, I do think that there's maybe still some bias towards, towards women, but it really is changing. I'm happy that things are definitely moving towards becoming more equal in Canada. That's the right direction, if you ask me. What happens in Canada if someone have been given a 50-50 custody, but the other parent is refusing to abide by that? Um, no, definitely. They could be found in contempt. Um, they could be, um, you know, based on cost issues or, you know, some sort of financial understand. Um, um, and they also, like, if, if somebody, you know, is denying access altogether and in violation of a court order or anything, they can face a criminal charge. 
for being in brief to the court order. Um, so, you know, those are some of the options. Um, and, and, you know, with respect to something like the child support and spousal support, if somebody isn't paying, we have an agency called the Family Responsibility Office that um, can enforce support orders, and they have the, the power to suspend driver's licenses, take away passports, um, put someone in jail, you know, garnish wages, all those sorts of things in order to enforce uh, support where it has been paid. Now, let's talk a bit about co-parenting. How do you think a separated couple can be in a good co-parenting agreement? As someone who is divorced and in a co-parenting arrangement now, I'm sure you can give some great pointers on this. Well, I think that they should always put their children first. And that means they should involve their children in, you know, the adult matters. So they they don't should never speak badly about the other parents of the children. They should never put the children in the middle of any arguments that they're having with the other parents, they should respect that the other parent is entitled to time with the child and that it only benefits the child to have a healthy relationship with both of their parents. Um, yes, that, you know, they, the other parents should never speak badly and should respect that the child, you know, deserves to have a healthy relationship with both parents and be spending time with both parents. Um, and, you know, there's other sort of areas as well. I, I often think that um, it's just like a personal view, but with things like dating and introducing new partners, I think that parents should tread very carefully with that. I, I don't think that children need to meet people they're dating unless it's, you know, going to be serious. And it also depends on the ages of the children. And, you know, young children don't understand. And so I don't think that they, you know, need to be involved in, in that or be seeing it. And again, unless it's becoming a um, and I think that as co-parents, you should always just be reasonable um, because, you know, at, at any given point in time, all of us might need to ask the other parent for a favor or, to, you know, for to change something in the schedule because of something that's come up. And so if you're always unreasonable to the other person, then when it's your turn to ask for that favor, they'll probably be unreasonable back. And so, you know, it's just, it's just better to be cooperative. You don't have to like the other parent, but if you can at least be respectful and work with them, it's only going to benefit the children. I said briefly just now that you're divorced and in a co-parenting arrangement with your ex-partner. If it's not too much to ask, can you explain a bit about how you went about establishing a good co-parenting agreement? Sure. Um, now, as I mentioned, my kids were very young when I separated. They were one and three. So at that time, um, they primarily were with me and their dad would come and spend time with them in um, my home, just as we consulted with a psychologist who was a parenting expert, and, and it was her view that at that age, the, the, the one-year-old is too young to be overnight, and so we and should keep the children together. So that was how we initially did it. And then as my children got older, we evolved to a schedule where it was like a two-two-three, so they would be with me Monday, Tuesday, Dad, Wednesday, Thursday, and then we would alternate the weekends. And that worked quite well, um, but then as my children got even a little bit more, you know, older, they found that the, the, all the transitions with that were difficult to always be switching houses every few days. So they actually preferred the idea of doing a week on, a week off. And so for quite a while now, my children now are 19 and 17, and, um, but for quite a while that was just 
open schedule that we've had where they're a week with me and they're a week with their dad and we switch homes on Fridays and it's worked quite well. Um, and we also live near each other. So it's, it's easy for the children to go back and forth between houses. So that helps. Um, but I think when most children, when they hit their teens, uh, they really have a lot of say in where they're going to be. It's very hard to, the child doesn't want to be at one of the parents' houses and you have a 15 year old and it's really hard to enforce that. Um, but so I, and I think that they should have, you know, their wishes maybe should be respected to some degree at a certain age too. But I also think when children are younger, parents, it's, it's the parents who should be deciding for the children, not, I don't think a, a six-year-old should be deciding which parent's house they're going to be at because a six-year-old doesn't understand necessarily what's best for them. Um, but for, and, and my ex-husband and I, we had an amicable relationship for a while. It's not so amicable now, um, but we've always been able to co-parent really well and be on the same page with respect to what's best for our children. So I always say that to people, like you don't have to like the other parents um, but you should be able to still be respectful and figure out a way to, you know, put the best interests of your children. Another thing that came to our mind while you were speaking is that how do you explain to your children why mom and dad got separated? I mean, I'm lucky as my parents are still together and I didn't go through anything like that. But I'm pretty sure that it's pretty troubling for a child to think about or just wonder about what happened to their parents. How did you handle that with your children? So, and that's a very important conversation. Uh, now, in my case, my kids were so young, um, it actually made it easier because they don't really have memories of their mom and dad being together because, you know, one in three, especially one, you just tell that that age doesn't understand it at all. Um, but, you know, I think as children get, old, get a little bit older, it, that's a, a really hard conversation to have, but it's an important one. And I think it's important that both parents... Um, discuss beforehand what the children will be told so that they can both be on the same page and they both need to reinforce that, you know, this separation or divorce has nothing to do with the children, that, you know, mommy and daddy or mom and dad, you know, they don't get a, they don't get along or they, you know, that there's problems between them and they think that it's best for everyone if they, you know, separate and, and, but it doesn't, it's not the child's fault, you know, sometimes children think it's their fault, so it's very important to that be stress to them it's you know because that mommy and dad and daddy still love them the same and that they want them to feel comfortable discussing how they're feeling with both of them and to really have a, an open conversation that way now there's certain issues that children don't need to know about they don't need to know that mom and dad cheated that's that's not something children need to be told they don't need to be told that you know mom and dad um, you know, is terrible with money or that they're, you know, a horrible person or, you know, anything like that. You know, the cheating one is a big one because I see people who, they, you know, they'll say to the child, you know, daddy cheated on us. And no, daddy didn't cheat on us. Daddy cheated on the spouse. Um, and I'm not condoning it. But, you know, it's not, they didn't cheat on the children. And for, you know, they, the parents to lump it in like that is a terrible thing to do. And I think a lot of parents, you know, they, not a lot, but some, you know, their anger and hurt, you know, at the other spouse, they want to, you know, that they want to punish them by having the children be aware of how awful they are. And that only hurts the children. So it's really important that that kind of stuff not be a part of any conversation. You know, again, like my, my kids are so young. I mean, a five-year-old or a six-year-old, you're going to have to 
explain something to you on some level and, and they're not really going to understand it. Whereas, you know, a, a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old is going to understand, you know, what separation and divorce is. So they might have more questions and, and things than the five or six-year-old. But, you know, it, the five or six-year-old might be more inclined to blame themselves or think that, that mommy or daddy doesn't love them. And so it's really important to have an age-appropriate conversation too. And if you don't know how to approach it, you know, it's a good idea to consult with someone who's an expert in that area who can give you some advice on, you know, the best way to approach it in an age-appropriate manner. I hear sometimes people say things like, um, I'm staying together with my partner because of our children, or I got to make this marriage work for my children, etc. right? I understand that's a huge sacrifice, but I don't necessarily agree with that kind of thinking. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, my only comment to that would be that, um, you know, I've come across lots of people whose parents stayed together, but they argued all the time and the children were really affected negatively by that. And so, you know, I think that at the end of the day, if it's the right thing to divorce, if, you know, if you're arguing a lot or you're in a toxic relationship, or, you know, it's just not working. I, I, don't, I think that, you know, divorce is the right option for a lot of people, but there's ways of handling it that are obviously better than others. And so, you know, children are very resilient. I'm a child of divorce myself. My own children are obviously in that situation. They're doing just fine. And so, you know, it doesn't have to be devastating for children. If you handle it properly, you don't, you know, hurt hurt their relationship with the other parent and you co-parent well and, and, you know, do a lot of the right things. Children will come out of it just fine and, you know, be happy, fulfilled lives. It doesn't have to permanently scar them. It, it really, a lot of it, I think, is in how it's handled. And, and that's the part you do have control over. Maybe the marriage, you know, it couldn't continue. Maybe divorce is the right thing. But handle it at least in the way that's going to be best for your children to have the, the least in. We spoke about how do you explain the divorce or separation to the kids. The next logical question is, how do you explain to your children if you're remarrying or how do you introduce your new partner to them? Um, well, hopefully, um, you know, if you're marrying somebody that your children like and, and you know, embrace and, and that makes it easier to have that conversation that, you know, this person isn't replacing mom or dad, that, you know, that they're, they're going to be, you know, a part of our family and they're here, you know, with another person who loves you and will support you, but, you know, we're not trying to replace your other parent. Um, and I do think it's important to talk to the other parent about it that you plan to marry. And, you know, depending on your relationship, I guess, you know, if your ex is an abuser or something, I like that conversation the same way. But, you know, it's ideal if everyone is, is embracing the, the new partner um, and, that makes it, you know, a much smoother transition. If you're in a situation where your children don't like your partner, um, you know, at the end of the day, well, the children aren't the ones who necessarily call the shots. I do think that that's an important factor for parents to take into account. I know in my own, you know, growing up, my father had remarried and his wife did not like my brother and I. And so I know what it's like as a child to be in that situation where you feel like you're your parent's spouse doesn't like you and it's not a good feeling. Um, so I would certainly tell people to be very mindful of that and be sensitive to their children's needs. Um, 
and you know to to, to be careful about introducing you know it's about remarrying you don't want to also have a second divorce and have children have to go through that with another person do people generally go through divorce after divorce um i mean i've seen people who you know are been divorced like three times which i consider a lot <laughs> You know, I guess it, it, I don't want to judge it because who knows? I mean, I've, I've only divorced once, but you don't want to say never and then it happens to you. So, you know, I guess it's it's, it's possible. But it's certainly, you know, the most common. I, I've certainly seen enough people who are divorced twice, though. Um, I have seen a lot of that. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's rare. You know, third, third time, I think you got to stop getting married again, but I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure your job is really tough as you see lots of people who are going through some of their hardest times of their life every single day. How do you manage that? Um, well, it's definitely one of the challenges of the job is that it can be very draining because people are generally dealing with people who are going through one of the worst experiences of their life and they're negative, they're unhappy, they're stressed and they're emotional. And so... Unlike a lot of other practice areas, uh, you know, in family law, we do have to sometimes almost be a quasi-therapist or quasi-coach or quasi-social worker. And it is part of the job. Um, people vent, you know, I'll have phone calls. Some days where I'm on call after call after call and it's just somebody yelling at me or calling. And they're not yelling at me because of something I've done. They're venting about their situation and how upset they are. And, you know, it is hard. And I certainly, when people are in that situation, my job is to try and calm them down and to, you know, get them to see things more objectively um, and not to make decisions based on emotion. And, you know, and sometimes they need to think about things. So, you know, on the call, they might be really upset and emotional. And I'll say, well, why don't we talk about it, you know, in a few days, once you have some time to process this. Um, I also tell people not to be reactionary because what inevitably happens is you get a correspondence from opposing people that's nasty and aggressive and you send you forward it to the client as you have to do and immediately the client is triggered and they want to respond right away and they're they're upset and you know again I have to calm them down and say you know I don't think we need to respond immediately we need, you know we need to do a, a proper thoughtful response and you know this was designed to push your buttons so, so you're letting that happen don't let that don't let that happen I mean, that's exactly what they want and you know try and explain it to them that way but um you know it is a big part of the job so uh, you know fortunately through my own journey through life i've learned a lot of tools that i've used myself in dealing with emotions and triggers and difficult situations so i try to use the knowledge that i've learned and the tools i've got I pass them on to my clients to, to use them when they're faced with these types of situations. I mean, and that's why I think divorce coaches and therapists could be great. And, you know, and that's what I would even tell a client. Like, those are people that you can vent to and, you know, deal with all your emotions with and usually at a much deeper rate. That, that's the problem I find people run into is they spend an hour on the phone with their lawyer venting or you know, going, I've had ones where they've gone on because the ex was on a dating site and they wanted to talk about that and it has nothing to do with legal issues. And, you know, if they want to pay me my rate to talk about that, that that's fine. But, you know, it's really not my, it's just, you know, they could probably talk to a friend about it and, and not have to pay anything. And so, you know, I have to sometimes tell people that and remind them of that. And I have had situations where a client, you know, went on for like, 45 minutes venting is that I know 
I'm just venting, but I do appreciate you listening. I don't have anyone else who can listen. And, you know, I know I have to pay you for this, but that's okay. And, you know, as long as they understand, that's fine. But you just don't want the situation where they, they're doing all this emotional stuff with you that has nothing to do with legal stuff, and then they get their bill and they're not happy because they vented at you for two hours. No wonder you call yourself a divorce coach and a divorce lawyer. Yep, totally understand. I'm just curious as to why you wanted to be a divorce lawyer or a family law practitioner and not a corporate or a criminal one. What motivated you to get into family law? Um, well, it's funny because when I went to law school, I thought I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. And I found that I didn't enjoy contracts and, and a lot of the corporate courses. And I really like people. And so the areas of law that I found most interesting were criminal law and family law. And I, so I spent the first uh, 16 plus years of my career uh, as a prosecutor. And so I prosecuted criminal offenses and my specialty was domestic violence. And I got tired of doing that and was looking for something different. And I, I had done a year of family law when I was first called to the bar. So I ended up going, going into that. And uh, again, like what I like about it is the people aspect. I, I like the fact that I'm actually helping someone in their life and able to have like a really meaningful impact on their life by helping them, you know, with the custody of their children or, or things like that. And it is emotional and it can be draining, but I just, for me, I find it far more interesting than looking, you know, at a bunch of, they say contracts or dealing with corporations and things like that. Um, and I, you know, and then also going through my own divorce, I realized as well how even when divorce is the right thing, it's still very traumatic and it, it can, you know, it really affects your life. Um, and so that kind of gave me a personal perspective as well on, um, you know, how difficult it is for people and, and how can I, you know, be in a that will help, really help people. Uh, you know, get through such a difficult time in their life. As someone who have gone through a divorce and came from a family that was divorced, what's your advice to people who are listening in who are going through a divorce, especially when it comes to being sane while they're going through the long and complicated path of getting divorced? Yeah, no, and it's, it's important that they, you know, that they do, even if they just take one or two of these things, like as I say, for me, the number one is exercise. If I if I only have time to do one thing, I want to make sure I exercise because it makes me feel good. And so, you know, when you're going through a divorce, you need stress management tools like these. Or even just, you know, going out with friends and, and talking about other things. Don't always, you know, have to be thinking and talking about your divorce. You need a break from it. Um, you know, get outside in fresh air, it, you know, is really helpful for a lot of people. Um, but I think moving your body in some way is, is huge. Um, and, you know, just having support around you is really important as well. Like good friends or family or, you know, therapists or however that supports them. I, I'm a big believer in therapy, first of all. So I think that, and, and I think that men, because they traditionally aren't as open to it as women are, I think it would be a great thing if they would be more open to it, because I think we can all benefit from connecting with the right therapist and talking things through. And so I think when you come out of a, a bad marriage and you have trust issues, um, and, and I don't, I do think women have it too. I mean, I know for me, that's something I've gone through. And so I don't think it's, you know, just men. I think it's, it's a human experience when someone's broken your trust or let you down and, and whatnot. But I think it's really important to, to do the healing work that you need to do. And, and you know, for me, for me personally, part of that was 
um, therapy and being open to trying different things. I mean, I you know, went to a point where I was journaling and I'm like not a journal. I guess somebody who likes to write and journal at all. And I, in my mind, I was like, oh, this is going to be so stupid. and like a waste of time. And I tried it and I did it consistently. And I actually found it really helpful because it kind of processed stuff for me. So I became a, a believer in, in it. And the same with meditation. Like, I'm not somebody who likes to sit still for very long. But, you know, it can be a great thing. And I did go through a period where I did meditate. I don't do it now. I don't journal now. The, you know, the exercise. Is, but, but when I was in the height of some of the most stressful times of my life, those were things that, that really helped me. And, and again, like the, the therapist, I think. People need to be really careful about self-medication. Um, that was another trap I fell into. My alcohol consumption went up um, following my separation and divorce. I found that I was drinking wine more often and, and getting it alone. That was something that I'd never done before. And I, I think I see that as a common problem with a lot of people. They start drinking more and, you know, that's not healthy, obviously. And you have to, it can be a slippery slope. So I think people... You know, they need to be mindful of, of alcohol or, or drugs in terms of using them to self-medicate hope. It's not a good path to go down. Um, you know, these other things that I mentioned are far healthier. And I just, my, my advice to you would be to just be open to it. As I said, I, was, I didn't want to journal. And I actually found it helpful. And, and I tried hypnotherapy. And I did happy, like, all, there's all kinds of things I've tried over the years in my own sort of journey. And I think if you can just be open-minded, you never know what might actually really benefit you and make a difference. I totally agree, especially about meditation. It helps you to calm yourself and get clarity on your own emotions so that you can control it and don't let it control you. Exactly. And it is really beneficial. And, and you don't have to do this until you do it for long. I mean, people think of meditating and they think, oh my God, like how am I going to do that for an hour? Or, you know, but even five minutes, it, you know, five minutes a day can be helpful. Um, it's, it's just, you know, doing it consistently. And, and there's guided meditations. But that was always my preference because I do find it very hard to just kind of sit there quietly myself. The guided meditations, you know, there's all kinds of apps for them. It's really easy to find them now. And I think that, again, it, it's really important um, when you're going through something stressful, such as a divorce, to be able to calm your mind and be present. And it, you can't process your emotions unless you allow yourself to feel them. So it's not, if you don't want, if you don't deal with it in the midst of the divorce, they're going to come back and haunt you, you know, years later down the road. So you're better off to deal with them at the time and, and, and you have to feel them in order to process them. And it may be uncomfortable, but, you know, growth doesn't come from being comfortable. And the way to grow and heal is to feel the discomfort, deal with it, and thank you. Like as a lawyer, I'm, you know, very left brain. I'm, you know, I'm a very practical kind of person. I'm not airy fairy and, you know, kumbaya kind of person. And, you know, I, I find a lot of, you know, because I know you mentioned you have a lot of male listeners. So I'm, you know, really speaking to them because, you know, women tend to be more open to these I was not. And I, you know, but I allowed myself to be, and they really did help. So, I think um, before you say no to something, at least give it a try. Some people do tend to turn to drugs and alcohol to cope with the overwhelming pressure and emotions. Did you go through that? And how did you manage that? Um, well, what I found is I, you know, my consumption of wine was going up and I found myself basically drinking alone. And, um, you know, it was getting, it was 
getting worse. And I just found, you know, I kind of, I reached the point where I recognized that, hey, if, if I keep going in this direction, this could really become a problem. And I don't, and I'm, this is not who I am. I've never been a heavy drinker really before in my life, even my university days, I was not. Um, and so I, I guess I, I hit that point where it's like, you know what, like this isn't serving me anymore. I got to change. And I felt like I was in a bl- at the bottom of a black hole. I'll be honest. Like I, at that point in my life, I was like, oh my God, like I don't even know how I'm going to get out of this. It just seems so insurmountable. Um, and for me, like the turning point in a, if it's, if it's a turning, you know, that sound like a, I'm beating a horse here or whatever the thing is, um, beating a dead horse, but I, it was therapy. I, and I'd, I'd, I'd had other therapists in my life at different points, but they, I didn't really find them that helpful, but I connected with the right person and she really believed in me and she really seemed to understand what was going on with me. And that's where I was able to really turn everything around and do a lot of the feelings of my divorce as well. Um, because when I came out of my own marriage, I had no self-esteem. I felt very beaten down. I, you know, I was not happy. I was, you know, and that's what where the self the self medicating began. You know, in the days, you know, after my divorce, and so connecting with this woman who is a, was a therapist and who just believed in me and really understood me, um, and working with her, that's what really turned things around. And if I, so if I had to point to like the one biggest thing that made the difference, yeah, and to, and don't be ashamed. You know, like that's I think a big thing. A lot of people end up feeling ashamed of something they did in a marriage and. Or why it's ashamed that they're divorced, or ashamed that they weren't as good a spouse as they wish they'd been, or what, or ashamed they cheated, or whatever it might be. And you know, it's really important that to work through that. And and only you know, because the other thing I see happening sometimes with people in divorce too is they fall into this big victimhood mentality as well. And that's not good either. I mean, you know, I understand if you've been abused, um, you're going to you know go through feeling like a victim. That's understandable. But you need to, again, work to become empowered. You don't want to just stay stuck in, you know, a victim type, a victim mentality. I don't, I don't want to use those exact words. But I, I don't want someone to blame a victim in any way because, you know, it's terrible to be abused and all of those things. But it's important that someone in that situation gets the support in their life to help empower them so that they don't stay stuck um, and not growing and not healing. I think some people also find it hard to get back into dating and all that having been married for the last decade or so did you go through that no I, that's fine i mean it was hard um because i like i was with my ex-husband for 12 years and before him i'd been coming for six years so i felt like i hadn't dated in you know 18 years and in those 18 years the dating world had changed a lot so there, there wasn't online dating you know before before when it you know then and we just met people the old-fashioned way. And so, um, you know, for years, I wasn't even open to online dating. Um, and it was very, when, when I first divorced, I didn't have any interest in dating. My kids were so young, I just focused on them. But then I reached the point where, you know, I thought, oh, it would be nice to meet someone. And I really had to push myself. And I was very nervous, you know, at the beginning because it was so foreign to me, having not done it in so many years. But you know, over time, I, I would say I became what I call like a dating pro. <laughs> and now I've had a point where I've 
I've dated so many people and I've done online dating and I've done matchmakers and I've done speed dating and I've done meetups and, you know, I've probably tried every method of dating and, you know, sadly I'm still single, but, um, I shouldn't be saving sadly. There's lots of benefits of being single, but, uh, you know, I think that when people divorce, I think that they need to heal first, but you know, when they're ready to dip their foot back out there, I, I think they, that they should. And, and, you know, no one, they don't want to, no one to be alone the rest of their lives. And, you know, with all the options out there, it is easy to meet people. Um, you know, it, 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 but, you know, online dating has its own uh, problems. That's a whole other podcast. But, uh, you know, I think people, you know, it's, it's good for people to put themselves, you're not, no one's just going to come knocking at the door. You have to go into picking up out being a female, do you find it hard to date since uh, you have children and all that? Is there a stigma attached to it? Um, I don't think I did. I mean, I think part of it was, you know, I was like, I was around 40 when I um, got divorced. And so, you know, most people that I meet in their 40s, they had children. So that was the type of person I was dating. I think if I had children and I was 30, you know, maybe that would be more of a challenge. I don't know. Um, but it's interesting. I actually prefer men who have children because I find when I meet men who don't have children, they often don't understand like the sacrifice that it is that when you have to put someone else ahead of yourself all the time and they, you know, they may say they love children and they understand children, but you don't understand children unless you've had children. And so I actually find from a dating perspective as a woman, I prefer to date a man with children, um, rather than one who's never had children. Um, so you know, I guess the sort of stigmas or stereotypes can kind of go both ways. Any last advice to our listeners who are going through their divorce before we end this podcast? Uh, my advice would be not to lose hope. You know, it may take a while, um, but just don't give up. Uh, you know, when your children, your children grow older, they will have a better sense of what's gone on. And, you know, it's sad that you might have to wait till that point, but just don't, don't give up hope and don't give up fighting. All right, Leanne. Thank you for the conversation. I've learned a lot from this conversation and I hope our listeners did too. If you guys would like to know more about Leanne, you can visit a blog at leannetownsend.ca or listen to a podcast by searching the Divorcing Well podcast on your favorite podcast app. Now, I would like to remind everyone that our goal here is to share knowledge with you guys and show that you guys are not alone in this. With that said, if you need specific legal advice, please get your own independent advice from a qualified legal practitioner. We at Find My Parent have just launched version 2 of our tools and you can visit our updated site on findmyparent.org. We have created a simple yet effective way for those who are looking for their alienated parent or children. Visit findmyparent.org and input the information of the individual you're looking for. All the information that you insert there is completely secure and confidential. Once you're done with the submission, our website will search all our entries for a match. Once a potential link between you and someone else is made, we will send you an email informing you about it. It is as simple as that. Visit our website, findmyparent.org, and click the search button that you see the header to get started. All right, guys, that's it for this week. We will talk to you next week. Till then, take care. Just see.